Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guests this week in the studio, poet and publisher, Chris Mattingly, the poet, Dave Tornio, the publisher. There's a book coming out later this month called The Catalyst, written by Mr. Mattingly. Chris, Dave, thanks for being on Big Talk. Well, thanks for having us. This Thank is you a for really having great us. opportunity. Now, The Catalyst is going to come out later this month. What's mm -hmm. the date, Dave? Well, August 4th, we're going to have the release reading at the Blockhouse. Right. Chris is going to be reading, howling, yowling, and uh, probably screeching a little bit. And uh, Alex Mann will be on upright bass. So that's August 4th, 7.30 at the Blockhouse. So that book is being published by an imprint of the Ledge Mule Press, which, by the way, you co-founded, Ledge Mule Press. Mm -hmm. That imprint is Pickpocket Books. Yeah, it's a handsome little volume that you could slip in your back pocket and carry it read. with you all the time i hope people do you that. may need it right <laughs> chris is an artist a musician and a poet he's also a, a co-founder of a press mm -hmm. alatesta press he teaches literature and writing at bellarmine university home at one time of the noted and fabled thomas merton mm -hmm. yes Dave is a Bloomington lad by way of several other states. Chris Mattingly has been in Louisville, his family at least, in the Kentucky area for eight generations. Chris, what's this book all about? What goes on in the poetry of you? Well, the book is about family. Huh? It's about place. It is about being a father. It's about violence. It's also about music and baseball and traveling. A lot of interests of yours. I think they're, they're all things that I, I revisit constantly and try to get right. When you were a punk kid, just getting into college, mm -hmm. you got a baseball scholarship from a junior college in Illinois. You did play a little. I did. That's one of your interests. Then... What did you do? Give it up? I did. I quit school and took some Pell Grant money, bought a car, and moved to the coast. Big Sur? Close, Monterey. Eventually, I did go to Big Sur. About Chris's book, yeah. he, he mentions a lot of things. Get me back on track here. Well, That's one of good. the things that I'm so excited about the publication of this book is that it's an unusual book. I think it has a lot of, Chris and I talked about this kind of novelistic qualities. Huh. It, it's almost, um, you have a protagonist, I think, very well-developed, distinct voice. Um, he talks, of, Chris mentioned a lot of things, but what ties it together, I think, is the tenacity of this person, and obviously the poetic voice and the diction. It's beautiful. He uses words from scutch to saunter. A lot of people who maybe don't read a lot of poetry would get a lot out of this book, would find how powerful it is. How did you two guys meet? I was introduced to Chris, I think, by Ross Gay. Yeah. We, we had a poetry group that met uh, frequently for a few years at the... Um, the Green Bean. The Green Bean, of course. It was on 4th Street. Uh -huh. that, that's how we met, and so we would share work. And, and then we became, beyond just people that attended a workshop, we became friends. Uh -huh. Well, you studied uh, a bit under Ross Gay when you were an undergrad here at Indiana University, Chris. I did. I was in his, I was in the first class that he taught at IU. 
and you were impressed with him, I would assume everybody else well, is. I, I, I was. The thing that impressed me most about Ross, he was the first professor that I saw in which I m- saw some of myself. Because really? I wanted, I thought I might want to teach, but up to that point, being an English major, I did not see a lot of professors that seemed to... Re- to I didn't connect with my professors. I'll just you say didn't. that. I didn't. They yeah. felt very distant from me, and they felt like they came from very different places. Um, when I met Ross, I thought, this guy came, he came from the same place that I came from, and we have similar interests, um, similar demeanor and approach to teaching, which I would say is probably closely connected to coaching, because he also grew up an athlete. Yes. And so he was he a football I, player at Lafayette College. I think, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. And we're roughly the same age. Ross yeah. is only a couple of years older than me. So I saw in him a kindred spirit, absolutely. You know, Chris, if some of your professors came from a different background, wouldn't that be of value to you, sort of broadening your horizon? Yes, but it did not necessarily map away for me, uh-huh. specifically. Because I, I was the only person in my family to get a college education. Uh-huh. And so there's a whole... There's a whole way of moving through the world and interacting with the world in a whole language and vocabulary that I was raised with and I was well-equipped with that was very different from what I learned as an English major at IU. Right. So I, I didn't quite, I couldn't quite figure out, well, how does someone that is working class from Evansville turn from a punk to a jock to a professor? You know, speaking of working class, I, I, I want to go over some of the various jobs that you've had in your life. You've been a field hand, a gas station attendant, a barista, a landscaper, a wallpaper hanger, a day laborer, a college professor, you are now, a busker. You've even run a needle exchange program. I'm wondering, Chris, were you trying to figure out who you were? Maybe. Maybe. It's just a... um, I think I also was interested in eating food and Uh (laughs) sleeping (laughs) under a roof. Yeah, I I always felt like as a writer it was part of... I I sort of had a responsibility to try out all of these different things. Uh When did you know you were a writer? Well, I started writing poems when I was 13 years old. I still have my first poem. I still have I still know the the first lines of that poem and it seemed to to attract a certain kind of attention that felt good that was positive really even yeah. among you know just a, a a non-academic non-educated as it were family and I assume the rest of the neighborhood yeah whatever kind yeah. of neighborhood you grew up in which by the way what kind of neighborhood did you grow up in I grew up in a you know I guess, uh, again, a working-class neighborhood that was a diverse neighborhood um, near Highway 41 in Evansville. Yes. About a mile from the Indiana-Kentucky border. Right. Near Ellis Park, which is a racetrack. You didn't grow up in a a completely homogenous world. I didn't, and I think growing up an athlete, I traveled Uh playing summer ball. You know, we go to St. Louis, Chicago, Atlanta, Florida, New York, Pittsburgh. So... I think through sports, I, I was used to seeing places and meeting different, different kinds of people. Did hitting a line drive ever compare to writing a great line of poetry? That's a great question. 
I have dreams about hitting line drives, but I don't have dreams about writing a great line of poetry. I'll say that. I think writing a good line is more gratifying, though. And you can share a good line of poetry in a way that you can't really share a line drive. Do you wake up in the middle of the night with a series of words put together that you say, wow, i got to remember that? I do. I do. And I wake up in the morning with that. And talking with people, I'll get that. Um, I think mostly the way I write is probably a composite of just constantly gathering words and phrases and putting them together until things lock in and they start to sound like a kind of music in my head. Music, poetry and music. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that, Dave Tornillo? Well, music means a lot to Chris, and he's introduced me to music, other things that I hadn't listened to because a generation actually separates Chris and I, so... You know, I really, I really value that connection to him, and I know that music enters his work. That's something I'm interested in about Chris, and maybe you could talk about influences from that area, because I know all kinds of music enter into your, your poetry, so and just your life. It does. It might be of note to mention that the Catalyst is the name of a music venue, in fact, in Santa Cruz, huh. and a lot of the poems are are they're they're set in the Central Coast, so Big Sur to Santa Cruz, but then also move back into the Midwest and into Kentucky. So they do jump around. But music, some of the poems refer directly to lyrics in songs or artists. Oftentimes in the poems, sounds from the environment in the poem will morph into a song that's mentioned by name. I might use lyrics to sort of develop a theme or to respond to something that I'm thinking or to articulate something I feel like I can't say well enough. And then also the experience of music. So to make music or to be in an environment where you're participating in the music because you're singing along or you're dancing to it, having that inform how I understand how a poem works, how a relationship works, and how the world works. So I I think in those ways, music functions of literally. Um, as well as well as metaphorically in the book. So you hear rhythm. You maybe even hear harmony. Yeah, I mean, you know, all, a lot of poets have their own kind of rhythm. You know, mm-hmm. they develop that based on maybe topic, what kind of literature they've read. Um, so it's interesting, um, in the beginning of The Catalyst, there are epigram, little quotes from Larry Levis, mm-hmm. the poet that... Chris loves and Bikini Kill, so you know the band. band. Yes, so you know I think that just from the opening of the book, you kind of get an idea of Chris's influences and um, how he he carries that on. He, I mean, the the poems are kind of elliptical. He'll, he'll have a motif that he begins with, and then a, and then it appears later in a poem. He kind of goes off in one direction and then brings it back, like in jazz. You know, you go off the you go off the melody, you go off the the standard, and then you come back to it. So, poetry is like a great way for Chris to express himself because there's so much freedom there, and also because he chooses to express that freedom too. Again, my guests this week are the poet and the publisher, the poet Chris Mattingly, the publisher Dave Tornio. And we're talking about his new book, Chris's new book, The Catalyst. A poem in that book is called The Catalyst. And I've been dying to do this. I want to read the first line of the poem, The Catalyst. 
A long time ago, I said, fuck work. But yet you've done a lot of work in your life. You haven't fucked work. That's right. I feel like all I do is work, especially now that I'm a parent. But I, I often joke with my partner, Laurel, that I've never had a day off in my life. And I'm not. It's a It's a joke. Um, it's a joke. I spent a lot of time I reading and writing. But that's it's work. a kind of work. It's a kind of work that I despise and that I, I walked away from when I was 20 years old. And again, I want to say this with absolute love and respect for people like my mother and father who have worked in factories and third shift jobs their whole lives. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that work. Right. And I've, I've deliberately chosen to develop another kind of work. I want to make books. I want to make poems. I want to tend a garden. I want to make music. I want to do interviews. I want to teach kids. I want to inspire. That's the work I want to do. And I try to do it in everything that I do. Do you consider yourself lucky then to be able to bring in revenue to the family, money on a weekly basis, doing those things? Yeah, I'm very fortunate. And I'm fortunate that I, I have... A partner that supports that, that allows me to have that freedom. Right. Another partner could say, well, would you put a suit on for God's sake? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And, you know, this is a little off topic. Laurel's an artist, too, Chris's partner. Mm -hmm. What does she do? Well, she does sculpture. Uh Uh-huh. And I say sculpture from found object sculpture to uh, clay to wire sculpture to wood to book arts she considers making books sculpture but she also does uh, ink drawings she paints she's an artist in every way though I, I would say that she's a as a mother as a teacher as a gardener as a person in the world everything is a, is a piece of art everything is tended with care beauty and vision and faith in that process you're lucky again in that you found a partner who, like you, has this great range of interests and passions. Right. You too, Dave, have a great range of interests and passions. You're a poet. You were called by Ross Gay. We, we keep on mentioning Ross Gay. He's mm-hmm, like, yeah. he's the specter in the room, isn't he? He's Yeah, he's like a wraith. He's like a ghost <laughs> floating above us. <laughs> he has called he's pretty you palpable. So, anyway, I'm sorry, Dave. Go he's on. called you an all-around artist. Yeah. Well, you, there was an article. He had to say something. He had to say something. There was an article about you in the Limestone Post not long ago. The headline was Bloomington's ambassador of poetry. What does that mean? Uh, I think it's because we had this Ledgeville Press poetry project. Yeah. So we would, you know, we set up readings at the IFL. And, you know, Chris's pop-up on July 27th will be in the IFL. It won't be in the main gallery, but it will be in the either, probably the Ledgemule studio, be a small space. So that's part of the the reading. Who goes to poetry readings these days, Dave? A lot of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I can remember some book releases we've had where tons of people came. Um, I think when Ross Gay's uh, book, um, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, came out, we had, oh, I heard we had like 250 people in the IFL. We were breaking all these laws. Yeah. And then um, <clears throat> Chris has had some readings where we've had, I don't know, 60, 70 people. Um, Yaley Kamara's book that we published, we yeah. had a big crowd. It depends upon, the, I think, the audience of the poet, right? So mm. maybe if, if we looked at someone who is a professor 
and their audience is largely academic and their readership is largely academic students, you might have a relatively small reading. But if you have someone that is like Ross... Very uh, popular. That's popular, that's, but that's also maybe not known locally as a professor always. Sometimes he's uh-huh. known as the person with the kettlebells or the person on the skateboard or the person at the orchard or the person that is always smiling at the farmer's market or having you over for a meal, tending his own garden. And so he knows so many different people on so many different levels. Um, so at a reading, you get a mechanic and you get someone that builds bikes and you get a couple gardeners and you get a farmer and you get some teachers and you get some students and you get, you know, just a, a range of people. Now, not long ago, I went to a poetry reading. Uh, it was sponsored by Monster House Press. Right. Great. And it was sort of smoky and people were sitting on the floor and on couches all over the place. Someone had bongo drums. Someone had an acoustic guitar. And I said to myself, this scene was repeated not only in the 20-teens, but in the 20-aughts, the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, the 50s, back to World War, before World War II, the same scene. In fact, in a lot of ways, a lot of the people looked the way they looked maybe 75 years ago. Part of the thing that might connect the tradition, if I'm hearing you correctly, not only the aesthetic, but is the sort of political commitment to the work in the face. It's it's almost an act of defiance. How? To, for people to gather and use their imaginations and cultivate their ideas, cultivate their love for one another and their a holistic vision of a place that's maybe not completely in the line with the dominant structure, yeah. that's, a, that's a political act. It is political in that you're slowing down, you're listening to a human voice. In publishing these small books, it's non-corporate. You know, it's, we do limited editions, we do 200. Um, Chris has, you know, he helped design, Richard Werenberg uh, of Monster House Press, he is, was our book designer, but Chris was the one that gave the okay and gave the ideas of what he wanted for mm. the catalyst. Everything. There's a lot of editing that, you know, we shared the manuscript. So, and also, me getting to know Chris and understanding who he is, like going to his house down in Louisville and listening to music, talking, having meals together, that creates a, a relationship between an editor and a writer that might not be typical anymore. But this is something we want to emphasize. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of folks that I did the MFA with, they would, um, it's standard just to submit work to a contest. Yeah. So you might submit to 40 different magazines and publishing houses in the hopes that it just gets picked up because the idea is that if it gets picked up, that's a good thing. Yeah. Whereas I think with a, there's something that Dave has mentioned that feels much more organic and it's just sort of like, it's connected to us meeting on Friday mornings at the Green Bean eight years ago to writing letters to playing to playing basketball together to making meals together to watching baseball together to talking about big sir this is just an organic development in our relationship and so that in some way this book becomes a relic or a symbol of our friendship as much as a collection of poems that's just out there in the world this is something that we've made together Um, of course other readers have contributed their ideas Uh, Other people have supported this in various ways. Richard has done a beautiful job. People have written blurbs for the back of the book. So there are a lot of of hands and and eyes have been on this book. um, But I think ultimately 
it is in some way a, a symbol of this connection that Dave and I share. How did Ledge Mule Press begin? Wow, that's a great question because Chris and Ross, David Waters, um, and Alex Chambers joined us, Bryce Martin. We would hang out at the Green Bean. And I think we always kind of threw around ideas of what could we do? Like what kind of thing can we put out into the world? And it, I think- Let's it, put on a show, kids. Yeah, let's put it like Mickey Rooney and <laughs> yeah. Judy Garland. No, it was like, it was like um, I think it was that. How can we get back? How can we enter the community? Yeah. And you know, Chris was living in Bloomington at the time, uh -huh. obviously when that was going on. Uh -huh. Well, we wanted to publish David Waters' book, Hollow and Round. That was our first project. And we were working with Hound Dog Press down in Louisville. And Chris has a real connection there. He apprenticed there. He worked there. So Chris came up with the name Ledge Mule. Ledge Mule's what's an, about that? Ledge Mule's an East Kentucky expression. It's mm -hmm. a coal mining yeah. expression. So a Ledge Mule is a mule that's born, raised, and worked in the mines and never really comes out to see the light of day. It's, oh. it's a very small animal but with a, a big uh, rear end that's powerful, so it helps pull the coal out. It's, it's an antiquated term, obviously, and it's regional. Chris's, Chris's um, explanation, the small but incredibly strong yeah. pulling that load was really attractive to us because it took us a while to figure out what to call it. So. Did you not have a special way of actually putting out books? Hound Dog Press did letterpress. Yeah. Uh, the very what is letterpress? Well, it's, it's a very meticulous <clears throat> process of you have little blocks with the letters and you have to lay them out and then you actually press the ink onto the paper and you make an impression in into the paper. And it, it's an art. So you literally had typesetters pulling pieces of lead out of the font and putting them in a line, that old style way? Cutting dies for folds, hand gluing, hand stitching, making wood cuts and lino cuts, hand printing, absolutely. Yeah, Romaine Rubinus was our second book. With hers, Hound Dog printed it but I was lucky enough to help Chris. He did the most of the work, but I got to stitch and um, fold, which was really, it felt good to be part of that. In fact, um, I stuck myself with a needle and there's blood on one of the most uh, sacred copies. <laughs> <laughs> he puts his blood into his yeah. work. Yeah, Then Gone is the name of the book, Then Gone. Needless then, to say, this would be a bad business model. It's not sustainable, you lose money. It's very slow, but, but it, it's love. It makes an artifact that is unmistakable. It's love. We know what Chris's day job is. He's yeah. a professor at Bellarmine University. Yeah. You have a day job too. You're a yeah. supervisor, a, a case supervisor for CASA. CASA, which me, which stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. So we advocate for kids in the court system who have been removed from the home due to abuse and neglect. Being a professor now of poetry and literature, has that in any way changed your writing, Chris? It's, it's hard to separate anything that I do from the writing. I don't think I'm that informed by my teaching and by the stuff I read, to be honest with you. There are certain things I've learned how to do by reading poets, reading literature, but I think I've learned my poetics probably comes out of day-to-day -day activities mm -hmm. and music and some of the stuff that we've been talking about, like work and just being with people, 
making food. I think those things have informed my poetry. And that might speak to why Dave said this is a book of poems that might be accessible to people who typically don't like a book of poems. And I think, again, my audience probably is not made up entirely of people that read poems. If you read a poet maybe a little too much, is it going to change what you're doing? Yes, which is going to make me contradict what I just said about not being that influenced. Yeah. But so Larry Levis is is uh, one of a, a couple lines from him serves as the epigraph for the book. There are ways in which his poems are all over these, just the way that these poems move, and. The way that I see that is he almost provided a permission to move around on the page in the same way that Levine gave me permission to talk about what it was like to grow up in a working class environment or around violence, but to move away from that. So I, w I would say absolutely I'm susceptible to, I think luckily most of my influences, again, are probably more hidden. Yeah. Um, they're like Bikini Kill would be one of my biggest influences. Um, but most people that read my poems probably don't listen to Bikini Kill or care much about them. So. Why would uh, Bikini Kill influence you? Because Bikini Kill took control of their own affairs and their own lives. And they were they would be the kind of people that would say, well, no one wants to book our shows and no one wants to produce our music. We'll just do it all ourselves. Yeah. We'll write our music. We don't know how to play instruments. So we want to make a band anyway. We'll just do it. We don't know how to book a tour. We'll just book a tour anyway. We'll just figure it out. So there's a there's a kind of, again, that's an activism. That's just jumping in there and taking control of the situation. So are you completely eschewing structure and tradition? I'm not. But I would say to, to speak to one of the themes of the book, you had mentioned when we were talking about music, you said maybe there's harmony in here. It's more likely that there's, there's dissonance in here and uh -huh. discord. And that's the kind of music that I'm interested in is sort of music that clashes and that's a little out of tune and it's just off. Because I see that in walking along the river at home. I might be with my daughter, Air Lee, on my shoulders, and it's this beautiful river, and then there's a syringe in the river, and mm. it ends with a barge that's kind of sticking out of the water, and then there's a dam. So you've got like the, the confluence of this historically very beautiful place with all this hard-biting urban grit and mm -hmm. pollution. Meanwhile, I'm holding this young life full of so much potential um, with all this love, but also with a sort of, and reverence, but also with a sort of, 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 of hyper-awareness of where I am. And I think that clash of sort of moments, that I come from a violent place that I would never allow my daughters to inhabit, that I would, I would keep my daughters from. Yet I live on a terrible street. Um, like those sorts of things, that's what I'm interested in right now. The Poet and the Publisher. Chris Mattingly, the poet. Dave Tornio, the publisher. Now Chris is coming out later this month, July, with a new book, his fourth, The Catalyst. It's being published by Dave's Ledgemule Press, an imprint of Ledgemule Press, Pickpocket Books. Thanks for being on Big Talk. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure. Yes.